I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Andy Rowe Show. Brian Boyle was 18 years old when his life was put on hold when a dump truck plowed into the side of his car. Brian's story has since featured on the Alan DeGeneres Show, NBC's Today Show, ESPN, and he's even received an award from former US President Barack Obama. This is the true story of someone who quite literally came back from the dead. I hope you enjoy the episode. You need to get on board with Pat Coffee if you haven't already. When you sign up to a subscription at patcoffee.com, you get five quid off and it gets delivered straight to your door through your letterbox. And there's loads of different options and flavors. The flavor that I'm running at the moment is a blend with hints of milk chocolate. You just chuck that in your Mocha Express and froth some milk. Delicious. When you do sign up, make sure you enter the code ANDYROW at the checkout. That way you are supporting the podcast. And we are looking for more sponsors for season three of the podcast. We've got some huge names in the pipeline already for guests. So if you know anyone or you'd like to get involved, just chuck me a message on Twitter or Instagram. Brian Boyle, thank you very much for coming on the show, mate. Thanks for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. No worries. So let's just set the scene a little bit because you've got a hell of a story to tell. Uh, so the main thing here, I guess, is you were on your way to swim practice one morning weren't you and uh, you were a bit of a swimmer at school yes I started swimming at a at a young age probably around 10 or 11 years of age and at first it was just the summer club team just for fun we did some lessons the year before with my cousin and just had a lot of fun doing that after my first year on the swim team for the summer I started playing basketball running track and fields getting into weightlifting and, and that type of thing. And it continued on into high school, which I took a, a bit more serious, began doing the year-round swim club teams. I swam for my, my high school as well. And on July 6, 2004, I was preparing for my upcoming freshman year in college where I was going to swim on the team. And all the goals that I had at that point in time were all shattered like the bones of my body after a near-fatal car accident. Yeah, let's talk through that because one minute you're heading off to swim practice, then the next, you just hear a priest talking, right? Yes, it was a very bizarre experience to to wake up into the hospital and, and not really sure how I arrived there or what happened to me. And what happened on July 6, 2004, is a month after graduating from high school, I was finishing up some practice at a local school, about 10 minutes from my house. And while crossing a local intersection on my way home that day, probably around 1.15 in the afternoon, regular sunny day, I was struck on my driver's side door by a speeding truck, and the injuries were catastrophic. My heart went across my chest. I sustained shattered ribs, shattered pelvis, collapsed lungs. Pretty much every major organ was damaged or lacerated or failed. I lost about 60% of my blood at the accident scene. I was also trapped in my car in the wreckage, and the rescue squad workers, the Volunteer firefighters, the EMTs and paramedics received awards for the way they had to extricate me from the wreckage that day. I was trapped in, in the wreckage and they had to use the jaws of life and just a very, I guess, complex maneuver to get me out of the wreckage in that golden hour of time that I had. And they were able to get me out as quickly as they could. And that was very significant in my, in my survival because they were able to get me onto the medevac helicopter and then life flighted to a local trauma hospital. When we arrived, when I arrived at the, the trauma center, I was pretty much dead on arrival. The injuries were really bad. My situation was, was critical and I was brought into immediate surgery. The big focus was the internal organs because that was the big extent of my injuries was a lot of internal damage. So the focus was on the heart, the liver, the kidneys, the lungs, and just trying to get me in a stable condition, which we were very far away from at that point in time. And the seriousness of the situation, when my parents arrived there, 
it was a really bad day for, for them and, and myself and my family. And they were told by my medical team that it would be a good idea to have my family and friends come in to say their final goodbyes because it would be a miracle if I could survive the first 24 hours, the first 48 hours. And, and time was of the essence in that point in time. So the immediate surgeries that I had, the blood that I was given, it was crucial to my overall survival in my first few days in the hospital. And, and going back to the question about what I remember waking up and, and what I remember seeing, it was, like I said, a very bizarre experience to wake up and not really understand what happened to me because of the concussion I, I sustained in the accident itself. And I'm seeing a, a priest next to my bed and I'm paralyzed and I can't talk, I can't move. I can hear, I can see based on the level of sight of where, where my eyesight is, is in alignment in the room. And it was just so scary. And I wasn't sure what happened or what's going on or why the priest is talking to me and he's giving me a blessing. And I'm understanding that what I'm just very hypersensitive to my surroundings, knowing that it's, it's the last rites being given to me. And my parents are there in and out of the room with various medical machines and healthcare providers looking after me. And I was in and out of consciousness, in and out of understanding what's happened to me. And I thought at first it was just a, just a really bad dream, like a nightmare. But as I am there and I'm focusing in on the situation, the intensity of the moment, I'm realizing that I'm not waking up from this. Whenever I would come back into consciousness, I would be medically induced in a coma, paralyzed, sedated, but also very aware of my surroundings, which was just so frightening. And I realized that it wasn't a dream or a nightmare, but it was, it was reality. You know, the priest reading you the, the, the rites, right? That's as if you were going to die. Yes. Based on my condition, I was... And you could hear that. I could, I could hear it. I was, I was hypersensitive to that moment and to various moments that took place. I was in and out of the consciousness of, of that time frame. I'm not even sure if this was the first day, the first week. Time didn't really exist when I was in the coma mm. and when I was in ICU until I began to actually regain consciousness and and so forth uh, close to two months later. But in that moment, waking up, one of my first vivid memories was the priest and my parents and then the medical teams in my room. And then I began to understand that I was in an accident, car accident, that I had a few broken bones, that this is what they're doing to take care of me. This is the treatment plan. I'm in good hands. I'm being well taken care of. My mom and dad are here. I'm, I'm safe. I'm in a good, a good place, but I'm still paralyzed and I'm still not able to communicate it was like being trapped in a locked-in state in a lot yeah. of ways, like a, like a mental prison. One thing I've always wondered about that situation when you're in a coma or when someone's on the brink of you know just hanging in there to survive, they could go either way. When people are in the room and they're talking to them and when people are talking to you, can you hear any of that? I, I know you heard the priest, but you know when you're in a coma and someone's sort of medically induced, any of that, are you hearing any of that? I would say a good majority of my time in ICU, I was pretty aware of my surroundings, even though on the surface, externally, there, me on the hospital bed, I'm not showing any signs of life besides the, the vitals on my medical machines next to my bed and my, my life support machines that are there for a reason. Other than that, I'm not showing any reliable signs of communication, of understanding that I'm there, that I know what's going on. There was a good amount of time during that phase where I was very aware of what was taking place around me of what I was seeing, what I was hearing, what I was observing. And that was my survival. And I was being weaned off the sedation at times to test my ability to respond. If I could squeeze a hand, squeeze a finger, move my toes, blink my eyes, it wasn't always happening. So that really was difficult for them to, to know that I'm there, that I'm listening, that I'm aware of what's taking place around me. But I was quite aware during the two months that I was in, in a coma in ICU. You died on the operating table, didn't you? Yes, there were. I had so many questions going through the recovery as I was able to leave the hospital. And it was about eight times when I had to be brought back to life throughout the two months when I was in ICU. And that was when I was in ICU. That was throughout the, the 14 major operations that I went through. Um, so the number that I heard from, from the most medical teams was eight times. Do you have any memory of... I guess this is quite a spiritual question. Do you have any mem memory of crossing over or anything like that or any experience like that? I really tried to, to, to think back to that, especially the early moments waking up from the coma and what I was able to remember from the very beginning and, and really try to piece together what happened and what I remembered, what I remember the day of the accident, 
days prior to the accident, because of the concussion, it was kind of tough for the day of the accident. There's no memory of that day or maybe even some days following that. But I would say one of my very first vivid memories besides the, the priest and my parents being in there in the hospital room was, was being in this situation where I was uh, seated in a chair and I was 18 years, 18 years old at the time. So I was, I was a teenager and there was other boys and girls that were sitting to my left and we were sitting in like this room kind of scenario and we were just trying to figure out you know, what happened to us why are we here where are we going what are we waiting for and around that time is when I remember just kind of waking up in the hospital and, and having these experiences and different types of things take place but I would say that was probably the closest I could get to one of those types of experiences but like I said, the, the, the concept of time in the hospital, in an ICU, in a coma, mm. it's really just a very like a twilight zone kind of experience. It's in and out of consciousness. It's very blurry, lots of things happening, very disorienting, lots of hallucinations, and just trying to piece together what's real from what is just me being weaned off sedation. When did you work out that you were being kept alive by machines? I would say it was a little after the first month, month and a half time frame when I was able to really start to have a grasp of my situation, knowing that I'm in the hospital, I'm in ICU, I'm in room 19, medically paralyzed, and I'm overhearing from my, my healthcare team members around me, whether it's in my room or going down the hallways to various CAT scans or MRIs or various procedures, that this is the situation that I'm in. And it's just not going away. This is, I'm not gonna wake up from this. And it really began to take a toll on me psychologically, emotionally, and I'm, already trying to survive just a month and a half of being in the hospital, in a coma, being paralyzed in this locked in state. It was, was mind numbing, excruciating at times, overhearing all these things happening around me, this, this blur, the what if scenarios and will I ever come out of this coma? And if I do, what will that mean? How will I be able to function? Mm. So I was overhearing my reality for the future, which was very bleak. It was, it was not good. It was focused on being transferred to a long-term nursing facility, long-term care, because I was pretty much going to be in a vegetative state in, in the situation that I was in. And I'm hearing this, and I'm 18 years old, all these dreams, all these goals that I had, and here I am just trying to survive and make sense of all this happening around me. And it just took a toll. And after hearing this and not being able to recover, and I'm seeing my parents come into my room every single day on both sides of my hospital bed, begging me to stay strong and to keep living and to keep fighting, it was taking a toll on me psychologically. I'm doing all that I can to survive and to keep going day to day. And all these machines in my room keep me alive. They're there for a reason. My parents were able to shock that life back into me. They were able to, to make me realize that it wasn't just me in the hospital room that was fighting, that was trying to survive, but it was also what they were going through as well. And it really took a toll on me where I was able to realize that I had to keep going for them. Yeah, I, I made that switch from wanting to give up and say my final prayers and, and just not wanting to continue on in my recovery. That's also one of those very vivid moments that my, my parents came in that day. It was probably the afternoon for visiting sessions. And my dad came in, his shoulders were slumped over. I could just see the, the sadness in his face, his eyes. It was just the body language. He was just so defeated at that point in time. And my mom was being brought in, held up, by both sides, by the nurses in my in my room, she had tissues to, to her face because she was just just sobbing, and they're understanding that my recovery is not getting any better. And when my dad came over, he he pushed this aqua cushion chair next to my hospital bed, and he put his hands over the web of wires and tubes over my chest from that was keeping me alive. All my life support machines and all the electricity and and various types of, of machines that I was hooked up, up to. And he just kind of watched the rise and fall of my, of my chest, my breathing, which was taking place. And he just broke down and he just begged me, yelled at me, pleaded with me to keep going, to not give up, to not, to, to continue on in this process, to keep going for myself, for him, for my mom, my family, my future family, my future wife and children. And I'm 18 years old at that point in time, but I realized by the fire in his eyes, the intensity of that moment that it wasn't just me suffering. He was suffering. My mom was suffering, my family, my friends. And I had to just do all I possibly could to get back into life again. When they left that day, it was very difficult for them because that was that last resort kind of pep talk my dad was trying to give me 
And I'm looking at him and I'm trying to say, dad, I'm here. I'm, I'm doing the best that I can, but I'm paralyzed. I can't show that. I can't do anything. So I thought, okay, mom and dad are leaving right now. They're going to come back tonight. What can I do to show them I'm still here, that I'm still fighting? And I thought, okay, I can try and smile. That can be something visual that I can do when they come in. I can try and have a smile on my face. And that was such a difficult process to, to do because I had to reactivate the muscles in my face. And I was so weak. I lost about a hundred pounds when I was in the ICU time frame. When I was brought in, I was a certain weight because I had just finished up track and field season. I was doing shot put and discus. I was about 230 pounds around that time frame. I was I was pretty, pretty big. Mm. And then the phase of me in that point in time in their recovery, about a month and a half into the coma, I lost about a hundred pounds of muscle and strength and, and everything. So trying to reactivate the, the, the muscles in my face, the nerves, it was very, very tough to do that. And I began to have seizures, I guess, just trying to. By trying to smile, you brought on seizures. Just back to back seizures. My body was going through convulsions and that scared me even more because this was a whole new thing that I was not even aware of the previous month and a half when I'm in, in the coma. And now all of a sudden I'm trying to move the muscles in my face, just trying to move my lips, anything I could on my face, just to try to get that, that smile going. And it felt so numb. I could not even, I couldn't really even do anything. I couldn't even blink. So to try and re-engage the muscles and the nerves in my, in my face, it just brought on these back-to-back seizures and convulsions. And then my medical team is running in. I'm having codes and alarms going off in the room. They're bringing in neurologists. They're bringing in various types of other other specialists for that kind of situation and it scared everybody and they did a the scans the the different types of of, of checks on on me to to see what could be causing this and then i just tried to keep going and, and push through that so you kept on going through this process of giving yourself seizures in order to try and get to a point where you could smile yes that that's the, that was my body's responding i think because i was just not able to do anything for those month and a half and all of a sudden I'm trying to just reactivate the nerves and, and the muscles and and everything. And then once I began doing that, the body was just almost being reactivated overall. And then the whole body was just trying to just catch up to the past month and a half. And then after about a couple hours of doing that, I was able to finally get that very subtle smile on the face. The seizures, they were still kind of happening, but not as frequent. They started to slow down a little bit. My parents were kept aware of what was happening as well, but they it was just a situation where they're just so focused in on coming back in that evening to, to see me because the regulations were three hours a day for visiting. And everyone was just testing, trying to figure out what's happening to me in the room. So there's a lot going on. And then once I was able to calm down and everything was able to get back into a normal rhythm, my parents were allowed to come back and I had a smile on my face. And it wasn't a complete smile. It was very subtle, but it was enough for them to see, okay, this is different. This is something that we can that we can see. And I, I would smile, I would stop. And then they would say, Brian, are you smiling? And my healthcare team's running in, my nurses are, are there on both sides. Like, are you smiling? Can you smile? And uh, I'm able to do that on command. And I'm like feeding off their, their energy. I'm seeing the happiness, the positivity in their voice. And that fueled me and motivated me to keep going. So I'm smiling. I'm doing all I can to try and blink for yes or no commands. And then as hours go by, and then as days go by, I'm doing more reliable things like smiling, blinking on command, moving my fingers and my toes, squeezing a hand when my healthcare team members are asking me to do so. And it was just these very, very small steps in the recovery that were allowing my healthcare team to know that I'm here. I'm still fighting. I'm still doing the best that I can. Mom and dad, they're aware of what's what's happening. They're feeling better. They're happy. My healthcare team, they're, they're overjoyed. And I just fed off their energy and their that motivation to just keep going and believing that tomorrow would be a better day. And that was that motivation to, to continue on and, and not give up. How did you learn how to speak again? The speaking portion was a monumental day in, in the recovery. And this was around that same time frame as days went by and I'm doing the more reliable things with the blinking and, and communication. They had a speaking valve that they hooked up to my trach, my, my life support. Once they were able to ask me to, to mouth a few syllables, and then try and speak. It was so, it was so tough, like not talking for a month and a half, almost two months. And I just, I have life support. I've got a trach in my neck and my lungs and my whole body is just being on life support. It's 
everything is just very, very fragile. And then they had the, the speaking valve hooked up and whatever they did, I began mouthing a few syllables, nothing was happening. And then they were trying to adjust the trach and adjust it so I could try and, and, and mouth a few more syllables, try and talk. Could I cough? Could I say anything? And as I began doing that, my respiratory therapist, whatever he did, I was able to, to adjust it. And I just began to speak. And my voice didn't sound like it normally did, I think because of the, the speaking valve and because of life support and the trach and everything that I had that I was hooked up to in that point in time. Once I was able to mouth those first few syllables and actually speak, and my healthcare team members are hearing me speak, my team's running in. It's a big moment for my recovery because up until that month and a half time frame, nobody was really sure how I would come out of that coma, if I would come out of the coma, and how I would be able to respond or react to various commands that were given to me. So to be able to mouth a few words and then to talk, I didn't have much long endurance to do that because everything was just so fragile and, and I was very frail to do that. But just by trying to mouth those first few words, it was enough for them to know that I'm, I'm able to speak and that I'm talking to my nurses by their first name because I'm hypersensitive. Like I said, the past month and a half, mm -hmm. I'm just tuned into my environment. My healthcare team members are coming in and I'm saying, you know, hey, nurse Kimberly, hey, Marie, hey, Tony. And they're like, how do you know our names? I was just hypersensitive to that. To that. And it was just a really special moment to have that communication with them and to be able to say thank you. That to me was everything because I was able to acknowledge all that they were doing to take care of me for that, for that month and a half, those previous weeks, those difficult moments we had gone through as a, as a support system. And then my parents arrived and they came running down and my IC director was like, you got to come in. You get rushing my, my parents into my room and they're like, okay, you just, I can just see the, 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 how frantic they were. This was another situation. They're not sure what they're going to see when they come into my room. But when they came around the bend, I saw my dad and I said, hey, dad, where's mom? And that to me was such a, it was a life-changing situation for, for me and for my, my family. My dad just broke down in tears right from that moment. And my mom, she was rushing up. She had the nurses with her. This was a normal thing. She was, they're always running into the ICU. There's always something happening. But for once, this was a good thing that was happening. And I was able to talk to mom and mom and dad. They had their, they broke down emotionally, but it was, it was good tears. It was, it was a good cry for once. I'm, I'm saying it's okay. It's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. You know, you don't need to worry. And right from that moment, being able to communicate and speak, we just continued on from there and being able to talk to them and my healthcare team members, feeding off that energy, that positivity in that room. I was just so inspired to just keep going and doing all I possibly could to show my healthcare team and my family that I'm getting stronger. I'm getting better by the day. And you don't need to worry about me anymore. Everything's going to be okay. Looking at your rehab, can you remember how you got to the point of being able to stand again? Standing was another moment in the recovery process, just like the, the smile and the blinking and the speaking. Being able to stand was a very big deal for my physical therapist because the pelvis was crushed when I was in the, the vehicle in an actual crash. So they weren't sure I would able, I would be able to ever walk again. So for me to be able to stand and hold my body weight up, losing a hundred pounds when I was in ICU, I lost all the strength and the power. And then the day that it were trying to learn how to stand again, it was another what if scenario. My respiratory therapists were there to manage the oxygen and, and, and my breathing and my Physical therapists were there. They're on both sides of me. They had a restraint belt around my waist to kind of help me in case I would fall over. I had a cane kind of situation in front of me to kind of help me stay upright and to regain that stability of, of standing again. And my parents were also on both sides of me just watching and just being ready to help in case they need to help if I fall over or if I have any kind of problems. So that day when I was able to switch out of that hospital bed and, and bring my legs over to the side and put my feet on the ground for the first time, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but through their belief in me, I was like, I have to at least try. So I was able to slowly raise up off of the hospital bed. I had the, the walker, I had the restraint belts around me and I just stood there and I felt like I must've weighed a thousand pounds. And I felt like if I fell over, I would break into a million pieces <laughs> because I just, I just felt so weak and yeah. so fragile from the two months in ICU. And, and here I am learning how to, to stand. If I can stand, that's a, that's a, a, a one step closer 
to getting back onto my feet and getting back into life again and regaining that, that independence. But it was very tough to just get back on the feet. And then as time went on, I was able to continue doing that, get stronger each time, get the endurance built up a little bit more here and there, and then eventually to stand and then slide my feet across the, the floor a few inches at a time. And it was just a few inches. Like I couldn't even lift my feet at that situation. In that situation, I was just sliding my feet a few inches at a time. And, and the goals were very small. It was about maybe, okay, 10 inches this session, maybe later on today, I'll go for 11. Or maybe I'll go for a few feet tomorrow. But it was just trying to set the, the bar very low, just so I could just take it one step at a time, focus on the small goals. And as time went on, those small goals became larger goals in the recovery plan. And that added to that extra motivation to, to keep going for the next phase of the recovery. How long was it until you could run? Can you remember your first run? I can. I can. It was after going through the, the process of a little, a couple of feet here and there each day, and then standing on my own and then walking and then walking with a walker, then a cane, and then with no assistance, it was months went by before I was able to actually walk unassisted. And I would still kind of be in the wheelchair. Most of my time going to my therapy sessions, I'd be in a wheelchair and then I'd walk from the wheelchair to the physical therapy unit. And we were just built on that endurance each day. But as months went by, the strength came back, the endurance built out, the stability was improving. And then when we're able to go to our local, one of my local um, high schools in, in our local county and run for the first time, it was just months of preparation. And it wasn't even a run. It was just a very uncoordinated jog. <laughs> I didn't even feel like I was jogging or running or anything. I just like I was just walking a little bit quicker than I normally did. And I was just the forward momentum of that. I had to move quickly or I would fall over. So the jogging aspect of that kind of came about through almost falling forward, but just moving my feet quicker. And as time went on, just like the walking and standing and a few inches at a time, a few feet at a time, getting back into my feet and actually jogging and then running, that overall process was just, just about taking it one day at a time to, to recover. You got back in the pool as well, didn't you? Because I imagine that would have been better for your rehab than running. Yes, that was a, a big motivation for, for me to get back in the pool, to be back in that, that indoor environment and just look forward to being that, that weightless sensation mm. of being back in the water again. I, I, I dreamed about that. That was a motivation to just keep going, walking, jogging, running. My goal is to get back in the pool. And this was around Christmas of 2004. One of my, my big gifts from one of my doctors was the clearance to go to a local pool, the pool that I was actually at the day of the accident, and to go back in the water. And when I went back in, I remember just jumping in, thinking this is going to be just a return to how I was before the accident and didn't really go as planned. I just kind of jumped in and I, I felt weightless, but I just, I did not feel strong in the water. But mm just kind of kicking and walking around. And my therapy sessions were going really well at that point in time. So the strength and the muscle, they were all coming back, but getting back in the pool was a little bit different of, of, of coordination and everything, but just being in the water, just walking through and then doggy paddling the first couple yards across the pool. And then, okay, should I try and do one lap across the pool, doggy paddling like that? And, and the heart's racing, the blood was pumping, the lungs were really, really going, but to cross that, that pool, one lap after all that I had gone through at the pool that I was at the day of the accident, that was another big milestone in the recovery plan. And I was so inspired by that, that I remember talking to my parents soon after. It's like, mom and dad, do you think I could, I could swim again competitively one day? And this was going into 2005 in the winter timeframe. And we're assuming I'm going to the, the pool, I'm doggy paddling one lap, two lap, three laps, I'm getting better. And then it was around that time frame where I kept doing my, my physical therapy and my recovery was continuing. But then I was like, okay, let's plan on going to college next year and let's focus on trying to join the swim team. That was my goal when I graduated from high school was to go to college, do the swim team, and one day do an Ironman triathlon. So when I was able to go through that process of getting back in the pool again, that dream was getting closer and closer. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One of the toughest events on the planet is the Ironman World Championship and you know if you're listening to this you probably might not know about it but an Ironman is uh, in metric terms is a is it a five kilometer swim the the full Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike ride and a 26.2 mile marathon run and you have 17 hours to do it that's ridiculous and so, so that's one of the hardest events, sports events you can actually do is, is, is an Ironman. I mean, it's, it has a marathon inside of it, so that says something by itself. And then the, the World Championship is, uh, and it's a very, very difficult event to get into, is in Hawaii. It's, it's called Kona. And it, the, the, so it's the, the toughest Ironman on the planet. There's a live volcano on the course. It doesn't get any tougher. I mean, it's hot. It's extremely hard to get into because you have to be the elite of the elite how did it come about that after everything you've been through you get on the starting line for this event andy i'll tell you that was uh it was a dream come true (laughs) so many times over there were so many just moments in the recovery where i was just so just very happy to have made it this far after about two years of recovering from that point in time. And I'm in college, I'm going through the whole process of that. I'm on the swim team, everything's going great. I'm getting stronger by the, by the month. I'm still going through, through rehabilitation and everything. That third goal, which was the Ironman was lingering. And that to me was something I watched the Ironman when I was a little boy, probably five years old. And I never watched it with my parents and just watching the swim start and just the mass of mm. swimmers in the ocean in, in, in Kona, Hawaii, just, out there going for 2.4 miles in the ocean and then they're going on the bike ride then they're going on on the run and i'm like at that just just being so inspired by that at a young age and just watching it every year the the amazing athletes the inspirational stories it was just a, a phenomenal event that i was always just so wanting to do it was always just it's a big a big focus of mine in the process of that as i'm going through the swim team and i'm in college and i remember it's probably may of 2007 and I remember just finishing up my final exams one day in a library on campus. And I thought, okay, I reflected back on the journey. I am where I am right now. But that third goal is lingering. If I can do the Ironman, I'm going to be fully healed. Mom and dad don't have to worry anymore. Mm. It's almost like being that independence will be there again. And I remember I just emailed the Ironman headquarters and I was asking them, I gave them my story, my background and my concerns as far as the medical aspect of things. And how do I get into an Ironman? How do I sign up for a local Ironman? I'm in kind of in the East coast of the United States. So I'm looking for maybe Ironman Lake Placid in New York or Ironman Kentucky over Ironman Louisville in Kentucky. Um, So trying to find something somewhat close to where I live near Washington, DC. And I sent the email. That was a goal, maybe a five, 10 year plan. I'm hoping that they can provide the information. And I sent the email and then that was it. And then weeks went by and I'm I had just became a personal trainer for the summer in between my, my, my college years, I was doing personal training and I heard back from the Ironman and they said, we would um, like to send you an invitation to, to do a half Ironman triathlon. And if you can do that, then we would like to offer you the invitation to, to go to, go to Kona and, and do the Hawaii Ironman as one of our, one of our media stories, one of our inspirational athlete stories for 2007 and this was June of 2007 and I had no background in long distance running I had swimming but I did two laps sprinting events not 2.4 mile open water swims mm. 
and the bike ride is 112 miles. So it was a, a very big undertaking. I remember when I first got the email, I talked to, to the Ironman team. I was like, I had to kind of just step back and, and think, wow, this is such a, an incredible opportunity from that point on. And I was like, okay, what, what do I have to do to finish this half Ironman? This was around June of 2007. And after a couple of weeks of training for the half Ironman, we went to Michigan and we did the steelhead half Ironman in Michigan. This was early August of 2007. And I was able to finish the race after about seven and a half hours. It's still the hardest event I've ever done, <laughs> especially coming from the background of the recovery and ICU experience and just the weeks of having to go through the, the stress tests and the evaluations with my, my, my medical team, my doctors, mm. my ICU director, my cardiologist, my surgeons that I had when I was in ICU three years prior. And here I am trying to do the Hawaiian Ironman. And I had to go through the whole process of approvals with them and, and checking all the different checklists that they had to make sure that I could medically and physically attempt doing this. And when I was able to do the half Ironman, it was a, a, another big milestone in the recovery. And when I crossed the finish line, then I was given the, the, the privilege and the invitation to attempt the Hawaii Ironman later that year in October. Talk me through race day then. Start with the swim. It was madness. It was everything I thought it would be based on watching the Ironman every year and hearing all the stories and reading the books and reading the articles and just doing all I could to just know what I was going to be expecting on race day and even then in that moment it all was a whole different situation because I could not have prepared for that if I tried just the large amount of people on every side and you're just trying to swim in a straight line and you got the current you have the waves you have the people you have the arms and the legs you've got the salt water the goggles are getting kicked off you're getting pulled in different directions mm. I was just trying to stay afloat and just following where everyone else is going <laughs> yeah. really what it, what it came down to. And my, my focus was, I don't know if I can do this race. I don't know if I can get to the finish line today, but I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to try my hardest to get there. And my motivation was my parents being at that finish line. I just kept visualizing that. Mm. And whenever things got tough in that race, especially at the beginning, as soon as the cannon went off and the race began, the swim start happened and just the mass of people in every direction, I just kept thinking about my parents and ICU and the journey we had been on. So we had already gone through so much as a family. This right now, this is our this is our triumph mm. over tragedy. So that fueled me in the very trying moments of that 2.4 mile swim. But after about an hour and I think 10, 11 minutes or so, I was able to, to set my feet on the sand and was able to climb my way up to the, the transition area, the little steps that are there by the sand and the little beach. Get, getting, out, getting out of the water, isn't that just the worst? Like, it, it's a great feeling, but you just, your head's all over the place, isn't it? It's like you're wobbly, you're dizzy, you can't, you, you can't keep it, your equilibrium is all way off, right? The equilibrium just didn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it was a mess. Yeah, <laughs> I was so determined and, and, and just focused in and even when I did the half Ironman, when I first experienced that, because I did a lot of my, my training in a pool, that's, mm. that's, that's what I know. I, I know I can do the swim, but I don't know if I can swim that. Oh, uh, it's a different ball game, right? Exactly. And then going from the actual swim to the transition area and your feet hit the, the sand and you're trying to just walk again and, and, and adjust that equilibrium, it, it, was, uh, it was not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> so I had support, a lot of support from the volunteers there going up the steps to kind of get me back where, where I needed to go, the direction I needed to go and stay upright. The bike's a pretty tough event as well. There's a, there's a massive climb on the bike, isn't there? There is. It's a, it's a, a very challenging bike course for, for me, especially in that time because I had no long distance road cycling experience. And my focus was, okay, I'm going to be on this bike for probably eight hours. And it was, a, it was tough for the half Ironman, Jeez, it's a long half of the distance. And this is just trying to just stay on this bike. I would say within the first 10 miles or so, my leg was already numb. I think I already had a cramp from the swim that was still kind of there. And I was hoping it would go away, but it would just get worse during the actual bike portion of the race. And you're out there in Kona, you're in the lava fields, you just have the sun. There's no shade, so the sun's in every direction. You're out there in the lava fields. It's just magnified with the heat. And the wind and the crosswinds, there really wasn't much of a tailwind. There was always headwinds or crosswinds. And I'm very new to 
the road biking and the triathlon biking experience. So I'm in an arrow position on the arrow bars and kind of leaned over to kind of help with that. And that really didn't help me because I'm not an experienced cyclist. So I was just being pushed all over the road from the wind. And then my focus was, okay, if I can just get to the turnaround, which is going up to Javi, which is the, the part of the race, which is the turnaround for the bike. And then you come back down towards where the transition area is in the, in the Kailua Kona area. And going up to Javi, doing a turnaround, finally getting a little bit of a, of a, of a tailwind coming back down that hill. It's like a, like a 10 kilometer climb going up to Javi at that, turn, at that roundabout area. Mm. So coming back from there, okay, now I'm finally motivated. This bike course is tough. This is very challenging, but I'm halfway through it. This is the hardest part for me right now. I mean, every part of the race was hard, but that was what I was really concerned about because the biking is such a big part, a big portion of the race itself. Yeah. So I'm coming back down Javi, the 10 kilometer climb, and I'm in the aerial position. It's actually working for the first time. I'm, I'm just gliding through and I'm just screaming like this primal scream, just, just being full of life. This is the moment right here. This is, this is the recovery. This is, this is so healing. And I'm just yelling, coming down that mountain and just reflecting back on, on the journey, how tough it was to get to where I was in that point in time. And my, I'm being fueled by my parents being there at that finish line. And I'm just having all those little visions and those moments of when I was in the hospital and walking and blinking and smiling, physical therapy, all the what if scenarios, the reality of my situation for the future and everything. And I'm just coming down off that, that turn, going down the hill, flying, trying to keep that momentum up and just get into that next portion of the race, which was uh, the marathon run. And I thought to myself, if I can finish this bike cutoff, you only have so much time to do the bike cutoff. If I can just get to that transition area before this time frame is up, then I'm going to crawl that marathon if I have to. So after seven and a half hours on that bike, legs were, were like lead pipes. They were numb. I didn't feel anything. <laughs> I remember just getting off the bike, having the help from the volunteers again, getting the equilibrium back on check and get into that transition area and just reflecting, okay, we did the swim, we did the bike, and we have a marathon to go. This is a whole new situation. <laughs> did a, I did a half marathon in the half Ironman two months prior to this. You're making it sound like you, you've done the bulk of the work, which you have, but you've still got, like, let's be realistic, you've still got a marathon to run <laughs> at Kona. It's like 40 degrees Celsius, you, lava fields, all sorts. Like, it's not like you've just got one one leg to go, it'll be fine. It's so true. It's so true. And, and, and to me... I just thought if I can just get off that bike, because the bike was the biggest concern for, for, for me and, and my parents, because that was, I had no experience with that until just the weeks leading up and getting my feet clipped into the pedals and learning how to be in the aero position and that type of situation. Learning how to even use the gears was a whole process mm. in itself. My first half Ironman, I was in the wrong gear for a good majority of that race. So <laughs> I thought, okay, if I can, I'm, I'm in the Hawaii Ironman, if I can get off the bike, then I have a good chance of just taking one step at a time for that marathon and and just kind of soaking it in just just enjoying the fact that i made it this far if i don't finish i don't finish that's okay you got on all right with the with the run and 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 you you're getting you're getting towards the end of it of the run and the cameras start focusing in on you didn't they they did they did i had the cameras a few times during the race especially during the bike i would just see them show up with the camera and and i would be on in, in the aero position or i'd be just struggling on the bike then we got to the run and they were there, which was great because where I was in the race, especially as it got, as the sun went down and it was very dark out and we're going through the energy lab, which is from the halfway point of, of the, the marathon for, for the Hawaii Ironman. It was just very late in the day. So the sun was down, just having someone to talk to, which was the, the, the camera guys that were the, the camera crew that was there. They were just so encouraging and supportive. Also the other athletes that were out there, you're talking to them, you're, you're hearing their stories you're hearing their motivation. And I'm reflecting back on the years I've watched this on TV and the books I've read and the love I have for the sport that I've never even done yet. I'm just, I have such a, such a, such a fascination with it. And here I am talking to the Ironman triathletes right there. And I'm alongside them. I was just so inspired by that moment that I was like, okay, I've made it this far. Let's keep going. This is hurting. My, my legs are numb. I'm not really running anymore. I'm just kind of doing like a, a jog here and there. I'm walking quickly. If I would see a certain post in the road, I could kind of run to that. Then I would stop, kind of catch my, my breath and then run to the next one and just kind of make a little game of it. And as time went on, the 26 miles were just kind of slowly ticking by. 
and I got to the energy lab and I make the turnaround and I finally see some lights and I get closer to where the finish line area is back where the transition area was. And I'm hearing the loudspeakers. I'm, I'm hearing the intercom. I'm hearing Mike Riley on the loudspeaker saying to the various athletes that they are an Ironman. I'm just reflecting back on the previous three years. I'm reflecting back on my life, my, my family, my parents, and what we have gone through. And I'm thinking my mom and my dad, they're there at that finish line. I had to keep going. So that slow walk, half attempt at a jog, I was able to kind of quicken the pace a little bit because I knew I was getting closer to the finish line. And it really wasn't until the last 100, 200 yards or so from the finish line where I thought I could actually finish this race. I was really attempting the impossible with my medical background, but I thought if I can just get to that finish line, we would be healed. And I saw my parents 100 yards, 50 yards, 25 yards. The lights are getting brighter. The, the, the crowds of people are there. The energy of that moment, reflecting back on the journey, my mom and my dad, I see them at the finish line. They got the lights on them. You know, they got the, their hands are up waving at me. And it was just one of those moments I'll never forget. And when I cross that finish line, I gave them the biggest hug. And I knew that we were healed as a family. We were back to life. They didn't have to worry about me anymore. I wasn't Brian, the sick boy, the, the boy in the wheelchair, the boy from room 19 of ICU, but I was Brian, the Ironman. And that was a huge difference from what we had experienced in the previous three years. And it's a moment I'll never forget. That moment to me is, is everything. And it's my favorite sport. I love the Ironman triathlon sport. I love triathlon. And that race is really what, what brought it all full circle for us as a family. You became almost like a national treasure for America. Like you started to get on the news afterwards, didn't you? ESPN, Fox, they were all getting in touch with you to have a chat. It was a bit overwhelming when I came back from, from Hawaii and I'm recovering just from a whole different aspect of, of the race, not from the physical aspect of, of ICU and those, those days, but just getting back on my feet again after doing the race. And then a couple of the local news reporters are coming by the house and they're asking for, for interviews and then a couple national publications and then the Ellen show, NBC's Today show. How um, was it going on Ellen? It was amazing. It was really great. She is such a, a an amazing person. Was she nice to her staff? <laughs> <laughs> she she was she was so nice, uh, and I remember talking to her throughout the commercial breaks and everything. And 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 to me that was a big deal because when I was in the hospital, we had a little TV in the upper right corner of my room, and we would have that on for the Summer Olympics of two thousand four. So that was always on. It was like the, the local news. It was the, the the Olympics. It was whatever shows or or programming was on during the day. And I remember watching the Ellen show when I was actually in the hospital because my nurses would come in and if they were, you know, doing certain procedures or x-ray or, or checking my vitals or whatever, the TV would be on at a reasonable volume. And then the start of the show, the Ellen show would be on and they would just kind of start dancing and, and having, a, having, a, having a fun time, which made my ICU experience that much more pleasant and positive, which came from a show like the Ellen show. So to tell her that in person, after all that we had gone through, after doing the Ironman and, and everything and, and the healing taking place, it was really, really special moment to be able to, to, to say thank you to her in person. And she was just a, just a really nice person, really, really great, really great experience. I bet. And Obama's talked about you as well, isn't he? Yes, that was, uh, that was also something. Th this whole experience has been <laughs> yeah. a, a whole new thing <laughs> for me. This is, this is, I'm just a, just a very grateful person going through the whole recovery, just thankful for every single day. And doing the Ironman triathlon and, and the first couple of interviews that took place, that was all new experience for yeah. me. I wasn't really sure how to handle that. I was so nervous going on those interviews and not really sure what, what to say or, or, or how to just what, what to do. And yeah. then in 2012, um, being recognized by, by President Obama with uh, the White House Champions of Change Award was just, just a really, really powerful moment for me. I'm just so grateful to have that, that opportunity to, to be recognized by, by him and, and just being able to really to make a positive difference with, with my background. It's, 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 it's a process. It's a journey, tragedy to triumph, but it's all about making the most of every single day and, and helping others. And especially those going through adversity mm. or, or trauma, helping them going through their own journeys as well. So to me, it, this, this, this whole journey has been about just helping others and making a positive difference. So the interviews, it's, it's still a, a whole new thing for me <laughs> as years have gone by and, and the Champions of Change Award from, from President Obama, that was just a really special day for, for my family. Because you now work for the Red Cross, right? 
Yes, yes. During the process, going through rehab, especially, I had, like I said, I had so many questions about my recovery and and who was a part of this journey. I wanted to hear about my my paramedics and my my EMTs and my my rescue squad members and my healthcare team. I wanted to know, I wanted to learn about my nurses and my doctors taking care of me. And when I was going through rehab, the, the big question I had was with the surgeries, how much blood did I receive? And when I heard that I received 36 blood transfusions and 13 plasma treatments, it really made an impact on me. And I knew that going through rehabilitation, and I remember the day that I was in my wheelchair, just kind of reflecting back on the 36 transfusions. In the How much blood is that? The transfusions were all throughout the overall process. So we had the blood transfusions from the very beginning and then throughout the surgeries, the recovery of that. So it was kind of spaced out over time. And as a trauma patient, I had various blood products, platelets, whole blood plasma, everything was just being given to me throughout the process. And it was so life-saving to have that blood available in those major surgeries that took place. So when I was going through that, I was just so inspired to want to be able to, to give back and to say thank you. And when I was going through rehab, that motivation was when I finished the Ironman, I want to be able to come back. I'm going to be fully healed. That's when I want to be able to um, become a Red Cross volunteer. And I was a volunteer for, for 10 years. And that's, that's, how, that's how the, the acknowledgement by President Obama took place was in my Red Cross volunteer work, hosting blood drives, raising awareness on the on the importance of blood donation and it's just come full circle for me ever since and it's just been an amazing journey since 2004 and and now having a family of my own my my wife she's a, a pediatric nurse practitioner my my two kids uh Clara and Liam Clara is is four Liam is two Liam's also a blood recipient uh based on his um heart surgeries that he's had at a, at a young age. Well, you guys have been through it. it it's, it's been a journey. It, it really has. But we're just so thankful for every single day that we have. And it, it's just been an amazing, amazing time for, for my family and I. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining me, mate. Andy, it's been a privilege, my friend. Thank you. Brian's book, Ironheart, is available on Amazon. And if you like this interview, make sure you share it on social media. And don't forget, I'm always looking for more amazing guests. If you've got someone in mind, someone with an amazing story like Brian's or just an interesting chat, let me know on Instagram or Twitter. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.